0: I want to read to you a number of verses this morning. And i to start by reading to you Jeremiah 10 verses 6 through 7. Jeremiah writes, There is none like you, O Lord, for you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms there is none like you. I'm going to have you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's verses 13 through 16. Timothy writes this I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, or he will show forth at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So that's a great doxology that Paul puts at the end of his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Now, go to Revelation chapter 17. Most of our time this morning will probably be spent in Revelation chapter 17, but we're actually going to be looking at a number of verses this morning. I'm going to read you two more passages, both of these from Revelation chapter 17 and one from Revelation chapter 19. Verse 14, we just simply read this. We're coming to the end of the age. We're coming to the end of the prophecy that's found in Revelation, drawing to the conclusion, the end of all things, and the summing up of all of human history. And there it says, speaking of a great conflagration and battle that will take place that will be set down by the Lord himself, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords And king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now go to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Here's the vision that John has. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. One sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, So we've read four different passages here from Jeremiah, from 1 Timothy, from the book of Revelation, two passages written by the Apostle John. In those first two passages, if you look at it in Jeremiah chapter 10 and also in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it seems clear to me that the subject there is God the Father. What was spoken of is that God that dwells in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen and that this God is declared as the ultimate high king over all nations and all earthly rulers. But then we read Revelation, and from that passage, where in the first two passages we basically have a description of the divine, heavenly, eternal Yahweh, the unending, everlasting God, as the king of all nations, and the king of kings, and lord of lords. In Revelation chapter 17, and Revelation chapter 19, we then have this same designation of the highest king or king of kings and lord of lords identified as the lord jesus christ he's the lamb he's the word of god and in these passages he's arriving at the end of the world age to rule upon the earth and to bring god's wrath and final judgment upon the nations and upon those rulers of the earth who have not bowed to him nor obeyed to him and to accomplish god's divine purposes and finalize them in human history So the Lord Jesus arrives and gives a visible expression of the sovereign rule of the King of Kings over all of the earth. And one of the things we see here is that this is the destiny that is waiting for the earth. This is the moment in which there is a capstone on all of world history and it will not end with a whimper. It will not end with the nations in just complete decay and disillusion. It will conclude, as we look at this passage, and if we're able to take our Bibles and start in Revelation chapter 19 and then read on into Revelation chapter 20, it will conclude upon a golden period of, we're told, 1,000 years in which Christ will reign in righteousness as King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth. And he will at that time demonstrate the power to merge together the holy spiritual rule and reign that he brings to transformed hearts and then infuse it into the body politic and governance that takes place over all the nations. The Bible not only says that he will rule, but it says we'll reign with him and rule with him. And he'll establish this rule and this reign over all of the nations and all the human societies and earthly societies of the earth. Then after this, the Bible tells us and reveals that this kingdom that he will establish and rule over all the earth, the Son will then give up to the Father, and then, as the triune God, they will rule together forever and ever over a remade heaven and a remade earth throughout all eternity. So there's a very quick historical overview of what's ahead for us and what's coming. My purpose this morning is I want you to consider a couple things. I want you to consider the nations. Our title of our sermon is... O King of the Nations. That was the sixth antiphon or declaration of the Messiah as King of the Nations. And I want you to consider the nations and the promised destiny that the King of Kings is going to bring to them. And then I want you to consider how it is that Jesus Christ ascends to be recognized as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he is first declared to us, he's the God who dwells in unapproachable lights that no one has seen at any time. And And now the Lord Jesus appears as the one who demonstrates and shows them forth, and the designation rests upon him, the Lamb as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Word of God, which John reveals to us in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we want to see and understand how it is that the Lord Jesus rises or ascends to this position of King of kings over the nations, and... So this is going to be a brief overview. Hopefully what it will provide is a mine, open up a mine for you in which you'll be able to mine out precious jewels and truths that will bless you and inform you and speak to you in days ahead. But this will be, I'm not saying the amount of time I'm going to take is going to be brief. I'm just saying in comparison to what I want to share with you, this is going to be a brief overview. So let's look at this very quickly. And first let's consider the nations and the promised destiny that the king of kings will bring to them. To do this, we actually have to go to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram, who becomes Abraham, who becomes the father of the people of Israel. And God gives Abram a promise in the first three verses of Genesis 12 that he is going to bless Abraham and that from him will rise up a great nation and he will bless that nation and he will prosper that nation and then from them He will bless all the families of the earth. And then if you go on and read on, you'll see that God renews this promise to Abraham and he expands it and explains it and gives greater and greater detail throughout the next 10 chapters. In Genesis chapter 18, God again comes to Abraham and he kind of explains a little more what he means by blessing the families of the earth, or at least he defines better what he means by the families of the earth because there he says, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation And all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. All the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. And then in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 through 18, God again repeats this promise to Abraham. And this is what he says. Blessing I will bless you. I'm going to bless you. In multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, this is the promise that God has given to Abraham. He promises, I am going to bless you and I am going to make a nation of you and I am going to bless that nation. And then basically when you read throughout the rest of the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, what you find is a, an extensive exposition and explanation and development, and the details of that blessing that he's planning for the nation of Israel, and that he's going to pour upon them. That's the primary focus. There's somewhat, but not a lot, of information, at least throughout the Old Testament, of the blessings that will come upon the nations, but there are, and there is developed, a very clear picture of the blessings that will come upon the nation of Israel, that God wants for them, that God is planning to give to them. And it includes the blessing of a prosperous and a growing national people and group of individuals that will rise from Abraham. Then given to them is the promise of land that they shall occupy and inhabit. And then there's the promise in that land of productivity and of fruitfulness that will come upon them. And then upon that land, ultimately we see that God is going to give them over that land and that extensive kingdom that will be established, a king that will reign over them in perfect righteousness and he will spread his righteousness and the infusion of the experience of the righteousness over all the people in deep and tremendous blessings. And we're told that this king will reign over them and from them over all the earth. And his reign will have no end. It will last forever and ever and ever. And all of this comes to Israel. Blessings of a great nation and a great and extensive people that will come. Blessings of a land very specifically identified to them that they will inhabit and inherit. Blessing of great fruitfulness in that land and productivity in that land. And then the infusion of righteousness over that land that will be distilled upon it with all of its benefits of peace and a blessing of a king that will rule and reign over them, bringing that righteousness to them. And you see, all of this is extrapolated or as all of this is explained as... The blessing or is identified as what God meant when he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nation that rises from you. And then we have this description of all the blessing that entails, all that entails, all that's coming to them. And now this is what, if you look at the scriptures, this is what was called a grant covenant that God was making with Abraham and with his people. It's like a king that would come to an individual and say, listen, I'm going to give to you and to all of your family and to your inheritance a great tract of land and you're going to be able to occupy it and live in it. I'm going to let you be able to take all the fruit from it and sustain your lives and enrich your lives with it. And let's say he gives that promise to that man, but that man then goes out and he rebels against that king and he doesn't obey that king and he turns from that king. Well, the fact is he will not be able to enter into that land and enjoy it because he's living in rebellion to his king but because the king has granted that to him, it's not taken away from his family. The promise is still there. They can't realize it, they don't experience it because of the rebellion and their sin. But the thing has been granted and it won't be removed from them. And so when the family gets their house in order, and when they come under the direction of that king, and when they're living in submission to them, the land is still there for them to occupy and enjoy and experience. It's still theirs. It won't be taken away. And so God has given this grant through Abraham, and through Abraham to all of Israel, and it won't be taken away from them. There's no condition to it. It's been granted to them. It's theirs to experience. However, they cannot enter into those blessings if they're living in rebellion against the king, if their hearts are not turned to him to submit to him and obey him. and Now, that's also a part of the story of the Old Testament because the people in Israel have a hard time obeying the Lord. They defy him and they disobey him and they turn from his will and his purposes. God will also explain to them and get them through Moses. He'll explain to him the the commandments that are to follow and how they're to live in such a way that they are in position to inherit and, and to enjoy and experience all the blessings he wants to bring to them in the grant that he gave through Abraham and through Isaac and Jacob. And yet they, they fail again and again. And so God adds to these covenants that he makes to them and all these covenants that he makes of land and of a king and all of them are just expanding the, the understanding of the way in which they are to have fulfilled and, to, and how they will experience that grant or that covenant that he initially made with Abraham back in Genesis 12. But then what God says is, I'm going to have to come and I'm going to have to do a work in order to prepare you and condition you so that you might live in a state, a perpetual state of obedience and righteousness so that you can receive all these blessings. And God promises to do two things. First, he promises that the king that will come among them will come among them as a lamb that will suffer and be a sacrifice for their sins. He will be the lamb that will be. And so you read about that in Isaiah 53. In fact, I think it is the last section of the book of Isaiah is an expression of the king reigning over all the nations. And in the very central verse of that section, which the Messiah is identified as this king and as God has identified as, as king over all the nations, you have, and he will be led as a lamb to the slaughter and for the sheep as the shear is dumb. Here is the king coming to be a lamb, to be a sacrifice for them that's one of the things God reveals the other thing is not only will he take the punishment and suffer for the sins that they've committed in defying him by coming to be a lamb before them but the other thing he reveals is that he will also come among them and he's going to change their hearts so that they have new hearts that will desire and long to and will be forever able to obey him and follow him and yield to him and this is called the new covenant but really the new covenant is a way for them to realize all the promises of the old covenant of this land and enter into those promises. You'll find that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, and Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 29. Let me read to you Jeremiah 31, 33, and then while I'm doing that, you might turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29. 36, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29. Here's what we have in, in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, though. But this is the covenant, God says, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord i will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people that's my problem at times is although the law is written now in my heart i've jesus as my savior and he's made me a new creature lawlessness is written in my flesh <laughs> you know but for most people they just got lawlessness written in their flesh it's all over them and their hearts haven't changed and their impulse is just to do their own will and to do their own. And it rises up from the time you're a little child, when they're little. We had one of our children. The first complete sentence they ever said, a lovely little child. You know, when your child is first born, you thought, oh, here's perfection right here. And then they begin to speak, you know? And then they begin to be articulate what's really going on in their mind. And the first complex sentence this child said to us is, I can take care of myself. <laughs> okay, this is going to be a problem. First time we took this child to a hairdresser and told them, now you do whatever the hairdresser tells you. And we were walking behind a plane of glass, kind of watching. They couldn't see us. They turned to the hairdresser and said, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> that's what's in the flesh. That's what we inherit in this kind of fallen, sinful nature. And that's what was in the flesh of Israel, even though God said, I want to bless you. I want to pour up all these blessings upon you. I want to give them to you, but you're going to need to obey me and follow me. And they said, I can take care of myself. If you'll yield to me and you'll listen to me and listen to my voice and follow me, I'll guide you. You're not the boss of me. Oh, what has to happen here? I'm going to have to change their hearts. I'm going to have to put some new instinct within them. That's the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 29. What I want you to see as I read this, I want you to see how the spiritual transformation that God wants to bring to Israel allows them to experience the physical blessings he also wants them to enjoy and inherit in the covenant he's made with them. Then in 36, starting verse 25, then God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be made clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So there's first that idea of the sacrifice being made and the clean water from the altar coming, come to wash them and cleanse them of their sins. And then he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I'll bring you into prosperity. I'll bring you into blessing. And so there's merging together this spiritual transformation that takes place And it impacts their ability to enjoy all of the material benefits and blessing that God wanted to bring to the nation of Israel. They're merged together and what we'll see when the Lord Jesus returns and when he comes is he's going to bring this to complete fruition. He's going to bring into the world a transformation upon all the peoples of the earth and he's going to set up a kingdom over all the nations in which will be poured out blessings. The blessings that he intended for them Paul actually wisely ties together the promises that God gives to Israel when he promises to bless Abraham and sees in it that God is also in that providing a promise of blessing to all the other nations. In Galatians 3, 8, Paul says, And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the good news to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed. Having said all that, I have a point here I want to make to you. God promises to bless Abraham, to make a great nation out of Abraham. That's Israel. And then God promises and God gives a progressive unfolding throughout the Old Testament of the details of the blessings that he wants to bring upon Israel. And the work that he's going to do in them in order to condition them so that they perpetually can receive those blessings. Not just bless them at different times, but that they might be ensconced forever in those blessings. And we have the details of the blessings he offers to Israel. He said, I'm going to give you a land that you're going to inherit. I'm going to make you productive in that land. I'm going to set over that land a righteousness that will be infused over all that land because I'm going to give you a king who's going to rule over you in righteousness. And he's going to bring his righteousness to all the people. And I'm going to change your hearts and your lives so that you can live in a constant state to receive those blessings. This is the blessing that's given to Abraham when he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and out of you I'm going to make of you a blessed nation. That's what we understand. That's what the Old Testament reveals to us. But here's what we can say. When we see that God says, I'm going to bless you and your nation and then through you I'm going to bless all the other nations of the earth. What we can understand is that the blessing that he's going to give to Israel is of the same kind as the blessings he's planning for all the nations of the earth. He's having a desire to put those same blessings over all of the nations of the earth, there to realize the same thing. They're to realize a national identity, there to realize land that will be given to them to occupy prosperity in that land, righteousness infused throughout that land, a king that will reign over that land as well, and over that nation as well. The point here is that what God was unpacking to give to Israel was not an expression of what he wanted to give to Israel alone. It's a blessing that he's planned for all the nations of the earth fruitfulness, productivity, land, new hearts to receive the blessing, a king to rule over them in righteousness. Israel was just to be the conduit through which those blessings were to be brought to the people. They were blessed to be a blessing. Ultimately, the conduit narrows all the way down to one seed, Jesus Christ, the son of David, through which these blessings will be poured out upon all the earth. But God has a purpose for the nation of Israel to bless them, but not them alone, but to bless all the other nations as well to bless them. The focal point through which those blessings flow, as we've said, is Jesus Christ. But it doesn't change God's plan. He's promised to bless Israel in multiple ways, and he plans to bless the nations of the earth in the same way. Now, among other things, what this does is this requires a kingdom to come upon the earth one day that will realize in full all of the promises that God was planning for Israel and for the nations. It requires a king who will rule over all the earth to dispense those blessings and those benefits to every nation. It requires it, and God promises it will take place. So just understand this, just from this one point. God's heart is to bless the nations, the nations. God's heart is to bring to him from all the nations a redeemed people of God. The ministry that God has given to us in the church is to go to the nations and tell them that they have a king who has come and he wants to bless them. That God's intent is to change their hearts and to redeem them in such a way that they might be receptacles of the blessing that he wants to pour out upon them and their land and their people and their nations. Apart from faith in him and a complete surrender to him, though they remain in default to be in their sins, vessels not only of of his blessing, but instead of his judgment and of his curses. But all the blessings that wait for them. And those blessings are available. And there is a king who is coming to render those blessings should they turn to him and believe in him. What a promise, what a hope. What a great thing when you go into some of these places that you travel to around the world and you see how dark they are. There is a lot of criticism of what's going on in the United States. All of these people, they don't travel much, that's all I can tell you. They haven't been to very many places. They haven't seen the kind of burdens that are put upon people and the hardships and the difficulties and the spiritual dankness and darkness that reside in many of these places. I'm not saying that these people don't have experiences of love and joy and peace And they're not living in a constant state of misery, but there is a pall, a darkness over much of their lives. God's desire and God's benefit when you go to those places is there's coming a day when God the King, Jesus the King shall rise up to bring His blessing and His light upon these lands and to lead them into an opening and open up before them blessings that we have not yet imagined. that will bring to all the earth, that's His plan. We're ambassadors Of the mission and the plan and the design he has for them. We're calling them to come. Worship the king. Who's coming to bring that blessing to them. Next thing I want to do very quickly. Is I want to consider with you how it is that Jesus Christ ascends to this position. To be the king of kings. I want to take you to Revelation chapter 5. And you might turn to Revelation chapter 5. While you're turning there. I'll remind you. That in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision of God inhabiting as the king over the throne of all the universe. There he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he, he tells of seeing the angels around the throne that are worshiping him, and they can't cease staying over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. And, and at the sound of their voices, and at the sight of the king ruling in his heavenly temple, Isaiah sees himself and he cries out, woe is me or I am undone. For I'm among men of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the light of the glory of God and I see my own sinfulness. Actually it says this, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So in Isaiah, God gives Isaiah a vision in Isaiah 6 of the universal king of all creation. What I want you to know is. That is the position that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Triune God has occupied over the creation that he's made and that Christ occupied. And let the Lord Jesus, the Son, left that position and that place and the throne over all the universe to come to earth, to come and dwell among sinful people like you and I, to come identify with our sin, to become a lamb, to die for that sin. To conquer over our sin and now we come to the book of Revelation and now we have an image of that one who had occupied that place that place of worship before the cherubim and before the angels and the seraphim in heaven and at the sound of the voice of their worship all of the creation shook before them and at the vision of that worship Isaiah is undone and cries out because he's seen the king of the universe now in Revelation 5 we're introduced to this king again And he's given to us a wonderful identity. It says this in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. John has this vision. I'm going to read to you the first 10 verses. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. Now, listen, just so you know, I can't show you all the references to explain this, but this scroll doesn't represent history past. It doesn't represent a record of what is taking place in the present. It's a scroll that represents history future and all that will be accomplished. To bring the ages to the end and to fulfill all God's covenant promises that he made to Abraham to bless his people and through him to bless all the nations of the earth. It's the consummation of the ages in a final grand conclusion in the fulfillment of all that God has promised, gloriously promised. And also as well an end of human history in which God will implement and bring to bear upon all creation complete final justice so that everything is resolved everything that's been broken and bent and twisted and perverted will be made straight and corrected it's all these things this is why John is weeping no one is available who has the authority to open up those scrolls and has the power to administer the end of the age and bring it about who will do this for us And so he weeps because there's no one to bring about this conclusion think about that that's all the hopes and all the longs in the human heart all the hope for justice all the hope for righteousness prevailed, all the seeking and searching for meaning and purpose in your life that would somehow have an indelible imprint and would go on beyond yourself, all these longings of the human heart, who will provide it for us? Who will wipe away my sin? Who will make me right? Who will make me pure within? All these longings, and there's no one who's capable of doing it. No one to open up and bring it all to a grand conclusion. And so... John says, I wept much. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the king, prevailed to open the scroll. It says, has prevailed. Now the problem with has prevailed is it makes it read like, Oh, this just happened. But that's not the force of the Greek here. It's, he prevailed. It's happened. The prevailing has taken place. Or he overcame to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked... And behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood, he looked to see a lion, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, and seven eyes, and seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came to me, and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and a golden bowl full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign, where? On the earth. We shall reign on the earth. We are going to be a part of this grand climactic end that you're going to bring to all human history. As I've said, the scroll represents this administration of the final acts of human history to bring about complete justice and to fulfill all of the covenant promises God has made and to bring those promises to all the nations of the earth. The question we have to ask you very quickly is, what qualifies the Lord Jesus to be the King of Kings? To be the King of Kings? We understand by faith he occupied that place as he was one with the triune God in Isaiah 6 He came to earth and became a man, but now he occupies it again as the king of kings. But now, not simply as a lion, but as a lamb. Not simply as a judge, but as a savior. How so? Why is it, what is it that qualifies him to administer to all the nations the blessings and final judgment that come from the covenant that God has made with all of us? The first thing is this. I have three things very quickly. First, we read here, he prevailed so he's worthy to open the scroll. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. I would say this, that Jesus is worthy to open the scrolls and administer the conclusion of all human history because he has morally prevailed over every temptation and attack of the enemy, Satan, as a man. Where Adam failed and fell into sin and where all of us fall and we fall into sin ourselves, the Lord Jesus came to earth and lived in complete perfect, moral triumph over every temptation, over every sin, over everything that Satan threw at him perfectly as a man in the flesh, as our representative. He conquered in complete holiness and righteousness. He is the conqueror over sin. He is the conqueror over Satan. It was prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and he did so in this great, wonderful, moral victory so that he can be our champion, and our righteous, victorious king over all that comes upon us. All the attacks of the enemy, all the onslaught of the world, all the impulses of the flesh, the Lord Jesus defeated it all. Perfect moral perfection. He's prevailed. He's overcome. That's the first reason that he's qualified to open the scroll and to administer the final acts of human history. Second, he has purchased our redemption from sin and judgment With his own righteous blood. We cry out. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seal. For you were slain. And have redeemed us to God. By your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue. And people and nation. Now here's the strange work of the king's rule. Prior to this as we mentioned. We saw God as the king of the nations. And we saw the triune God as the unseen god who dwells in immortality and dwells in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen and we might anticipate at this point in time in the passage as they're told to look to see the one who's prevailed that he would see the king of kings but all he would see is a blaring light that he couldn't even look upon he couldn't gaze upon it would cause him to melt and flinch and he couldn't gaze upon the sight of the glowing radiance of this infinite eternal god but now John looks to see this great king that's described for us. But now he sees the king as a lamb as though he'd been slain. As one who had come and lived the sinless, victorious life that we could never live over temptation and over sin and then died for our sins in his place. And now this one is exalted upon the throne. and This is who we see as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. God has always been the sovereign king over all creation. As the sovereign king, he rules and he gives his edicts and he gives his laws and if men disobey them, they come under his punishment and they come under his punishment. How are we ever to have a king that was a king of grace, a sovereign king of grace and mercy? Well, the reason we can have a sovereign king of grace and mercy is that king came in grace and mercy and became a man and suffered for us and died for us and rose again for us. To claim a throne, not only of sovereignty, but of sovereign grace, of sovereign mercy that he could extend to all of us so that all of us might know and experience the covenant promises and be sealed in that righteousness that he gives us that we might realize those promises forever and ever. and He might reign over us. So we look to see the lion, and as we said, we see the lamb. We look to see the judge, and we see the redeemer, Savior. The Lamb will conquer we 're told in seventeen fourteen of Revelation. The Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings. The King is our conquering man who has crushed satan 's head in moral triumph over temptation and sin. The King is our conquering Lamb who has died for our sins and paid the price for the sins we have committed in order to purchase us and bring us back into his victory. Ultimately, the King is also worthy to reign and rule because he has all of the, the constitution of one who can rule and reign. He has all the power to rule and reign. We go look at one of the passages here, it's where it says that, I looked and behold in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, and look how he's described, as though he's been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. The number seven is a number of perfection. The horns are an expression in this passage of power. So it's an expression of perfect power. The eyes are an expression of wisdom or knowledge. And so it's an expression of perfect wisdom and knowledge. The spirits, it says, who are over all the earth are an expression of the omnipresent or all present or perfectly present appearance of this divine being. Here we have the lamb that has been slain, that has prevailed, that has overcome, now identified still as the one who stood upon the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. Omnipotent. uh, Omniscient, all-knowing. Omnipresent everywhere. He is constitutionally equipped to reign over all of creation and to rule over all the nations. He has provided for our victory over sin and provided a righteousness to be given to us. He has provided the penalty for our sin as a lamb in order that we might come before him, and now, at the same time, he is still equipped as the divine, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God to rule over all creation. This is why he has prevailed and why he is able, why he is able and worthy to take the scroll. And reign on our behalf. And so it's because of this that he is fit to come and bring to all of us. The certain blessed climax of a kingdom rule over all the earth. And it's coming. The Bible says it is coming. No matter whatever trials you face. No matter whatever difficulties you enter into in your life. No matter how confusing the state of things are around you. You will not miss this kingdom If you confess this king, he's coming. The son is coming to reign as a sovereign king, but a king of grace and a king of mercy for all those who trust and believe in him. It's coming to this earth from a man who has conquered our temptations and our sins and died for them and is constitutionally equipped to reign and rule forever and ever. He will keep his covenant promises to the nations. He will keep his covenant promises to us. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. He will. It is his promise. And then one day, those from every tongue and tribe and nation will sing worthy is the lamb that was slain. This is the message we bring to the world and to all nations. This is the message. You have a king who has come to make you fit for his kingdom. A kingdom that will come upon all of the earth. Prepare to meet him. Prepare to meet him. The antiphon that was sung in the 8th century by the early church was simply this. O king of the nations and their desire... The cornerstone making both one. Come and save the human race, which you fashion from clay. He shall. Let's bow our heads. Lord, the impulse that we have so often is we want to rule on the throne of our own hearts and be in control. And yet we confess it, it doesn't work well for us. Lord, we need a king. We need a king to reign over us and rule over us in righteousness. We need a king that we can bow before and worship and lay our confidence in. We need a king that is gracious and merciful and wants to bestow upon us blessing, untold blessing. One that we can rest in securely, hope in forever, cast our future anticipations upon. We need a king. And we have one. We thank you, dear Jesus, that you're the Savior that died for us on the cross. We thank you for the suffering that you emptied yourself to enter into. We thank you for what you've accomplished to wash us and cleanse us and forgive us. We need a Savior, but we want more than just a Savior. We want a Savior whose salvation to us is secured in his all-power, the all-powerful nature and authority of his everlasting reign. We need a Savior King. And we have that too. We praise you and we thank you. We're going into an uncertain year again. We don't know all that it holds. We want to be faithful to you as ambassadors of your kingdom. We want to live for you and honor you and glorify you by trusting in you. We want to look through everything that's ahead to the end. You've told us in the back of the book what's going to happen. Jesus will reign. He will bring his kingdom to all the earth. Oh God, we bless you. In all the confusion we see in the world, we bless you that you shall have the nations as your own. And you shall bless them one day. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.